Morning, church. I'll be reading from Galatians chapter 1, verse 11, to chapter 2, verse 16. Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, 
he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Thank you so much, Steph. It is a joy and a privilege to be able to be addressing you uh, this morning, uh, to have the people that I'm uh, partnering closest with on the planet all together in one room uh, is a huge privilege, but to have those people in my hometown and my home church is really grace upon grace. So I couldn't be more happy, excited, and expectant uh, this morning. During our time to these three days together, we have decided that we're going to reflect on things that we want to pass on to the next generation, things that are vital, things that are essential, things that matter, issues of first importance. Our collective uh, desire is to see a new generation emerge, but a new generation emerge that has clarity, has purpose, has commission, not a generation that emerges that is confused uh, lacking direction or empowering. It's our desire that as generations we'd link arms together and that with one heart and with one mind we would glorify God and advance His kingdom together. And if we're going to do that, there is no topic that requires greater clarity and greater togetherness than around the issue of the gospel. And this morning what I want to do is I want to draw us draw our attention to six aspects of the gospel that I think are really important if we are going to be faithful to the charge of uh, blessing the next generation and moving forward in that. The first thing that I want you to see from the text that uh, Steph read to us uh, in Galatians is that the gospel must result in personal conversion. We've read a long passage of scripture, but the, the main idea or the governing thought of the passage that we read is found in verse 11. Paul is eager that the church in Galatia know that the gospel that he preached to them didn't have its origins in humans, but that it had its origins in God. And his exhibit A for that reality is actually his own personal conversion. 
Paul reminds them of the way that he was saved. You remember the story from Acts chapter 9, don't you? Paul is on his way. He is super committed to shutting down churches and arresting Christians. And then all of a sudden, the Jesus that he knew was a fraud and a fake appears to him. And it appears to him like the noonday sun. Paul literally falls to the ground. He cannot see. He's blinded. But actually, in his moment of blindness... He gets to see more clearly about who Jesus is and what he's about. In his moment of blindness, he sees for the first time that Jesus Christ is the true Messiah. He sees for the very first time that Jesus was the God who became flesh and dwelt amongst us. He got to see for the first time that Jesus Christ died on the cross for his sin. He came to see that Jesus Christ has won the victory over sin and death and that he is Uh, risen, ruling, and reigning. In his blindness, he gets to see the glory of the one and only. And this personal conversion, this moment of encounter, changes absolutely everything for Paul. Paul goes from seeing Jesus as a fraud and as false and fake to seeing and knowing him as the way, the truth, and the life. Paul goes from arresting Christians to and throwing them in jail to embracing them and calling them brothers and sisters. He goes from destroying the church to planting and strengthening churches. The transforming effect in Paul's life is so dramatic that they actually have to warn Christians about the authenticity of it. The change is so dramatic that that people could think that this, this is a fake, it's a fraud, he's trying to set us up. So they actually have to go out and they have to warn churches that this is a authentic conversion. And it most certainly was an authentic conversion. Because not only is Paul personally converted by Jesus Christ, but he then spends the rest of his life trying to convert others. In Acts 20, Paul summarizes his ministry as follows. I consider my life worth nothing to me. May I, my only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Or in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2, Paul says, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Or or, or Paul instructs Timothy to do the work of the evangelist. Friends, if we do not lead with the gospel, if we do not make personal conversion our first priority, if we get hazy around what really matters, if we find things that seem more sophisticated to prioritize, we will be signing our death warrant. There is no next generation without personal conversion. None of us have a package that we can give to the next generation without God himself acting upon the next generation and converting them. If the next generation isn't converted, if they don't have a personal salvation experience of their own, there is no next generation. The church is made up of people who have been personally converted. If there is nobody in the room that is personally converted, it is not a church. It doesn't matter what they are doing. 
We see in the book of Acts that Peter stands up and he preaches the gospel. And on that day, 3,000 people get personally converted. And 3,000 people then join together and become the new family of God. The gospel created the first church. Remove the gospel and there is no book of Acts. There is no Acts 2 church without people responding to the gospel on a day, which is why Peter can write back and say, when he's writing to churches that he's working with, once you were not a people, once you had nothing in common, but now you are the people of God. Well, how did that happen? How did you go from not being a people to being the people of God? Well, Peter says, well, once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. The gospel creates the community. Personal conversion creates the church. If there is no personal conversion, there really is no church at all. What does this mean for us? What does it mean for us? Well, let's, let's just begin at home base. We need to evangelize our kids. It doesn't matter how excited we are about Jesus and the church and his mission if we don't invest the time in sharing the gospel with our children and being intentional about evangelizing them, we are selling them short. The goal of parenting isn't church attendance. It isn't moral conformity. The primary purpose, your primary purpose as a parent is to share the gospel with your children repeatedly, over and over and over. Not again, yeah, we're going to do it again. It is to share the gospel. Your first mission field is at home. Your first mission field at home. And I am just so glad that I am married to like the most amazing evangelist on the planet because Anna has been incredible with our kids. I was on a golfing weekend a couple of weeks ago and I was chatting to a pastor whose parents are pastors and his mom passed away. And I was just asking him about that. And he said, you know, my dad shaped my thinking about church and that a lot, but it was really out of his public ministry that I received from my dad, I actually realized that I had most of my one-on-one spiritual conversations with my mom, and now that she's no longer around, I really miss that more than ever. And I said to him is, I think my children will say the same thing. I think my children will say the same thing, because they've had more one-on-one spiritual conversations with my wife than they've had with me. Anna had a mom who took her through a book, Leading Little Ones to God, and Anna got hold of that book, and with each of our kids, day in and day out, when they're young, they just like work through this book. It's like quite a long book, and Anna just sowed, 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 sowed so many gospel seeds into my children's life. And then at one point, they responded to the gospel, and they accepted Jesus Christ. And friends, as parents, our first priority, before we want to reach the ends of the earth. We need to reach our kids. We need to reach our kids. We need to prioritize sharing the gospel. And friends, ironically, the more mature we get as as believers, the more we can obscure the gospel to our children. Because our children can assume, oh, to be what it means to be a Christian is that you're super mature and you've got it all together and they don't feel mature and they don't feel like they've got everything together. 
But actually, the gospel message isn't if you're super mature and got it all together, then Jesus wants to give you the merit badge and call you in. The message of the gospel is that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's only through the miraculous and extreme sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we can be saved and rescued. So first, we need to begin at home base. Secondly, as churches, we need to prioritize evangelizing the next generation. We need to prioritize direct evangelism of the next generation. I had a friend who arrived in the city and had spent about a year in the city and he's involved in different evangelistic activities and I just asked him, uh, what, what you kind of read on the city? And he said to me, Steve, you know, I am amazed at how little direct evangelism is happening in schools in Cape Town. And it was just like, whoa, he was absolutely right. I could remember when um, I was younger, some of the the crazy stuff that we do in different schools. I can remember in my 20s, uh, knowing this guy, Terran Williams, who would just go into schools and be a part of big events where loads of uh, schools would become together, and he would just like preach the gospel up front, boom, full on, give an appeal, loads of kids would respond. It was just phenomenal. It was inspirational. And I'm just wondering... Who's going to be the next Terran Williams? Who, who, who's going to be going into these schools and telling people about Jesus? A little while ago, I was going on a little prayer walk, and I was actually uh, uh, saw a little group of kind of students huddled together, and I'm like, they, 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 they were near a, 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 a pre-primary school, and I'm like, a group of students, kind of like nine o'clock. Uh, on a weekday, huddled together, this must be Christians. I know, <laughs> nobody else is doing this. So I, like, I, like, I interrupted them and I said, hey, 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 uh, who, who are you guys? And they said, oh, we're, we're, we're just kind of students. And I, and I said, well, what are you doing? They said, well, we're praying. I, I, I said, and, and where are you from? They said, no, we're from Common Ground. I said, what are you about to do? No, we're about to go into the school and, uh, and do a Bible study. And I just said, hey, my kid goes to the school. Thank you so much for doing this. And then we pray together. Friends, we need to prioritize direct evangelism for the next generation. What percentage of your budget is going towards direct evangelism of the next generation? You say, well, if we look at our budget, you know, this is our youth ministry. No, no, not your youth ministry, not caring for the sheep. I'm saying, what percentage of your budget is going to getting more sheep, new sheep, younger sheep? And my guess is if you do the numbers, crunch the numbers, and come back and tell me I'm right, it's less than 1%. And friends, if we think about the next generation, anything that you read on the next generation is that the next generation is harder to reach. It requires more patience, more courage, more thoughtfulness, which means it's going to require more money. It's going to require more intentionality. To say that we love the gospel and to say that we want to see a next generation emerge but not prioritize evangelizing the next generation is to make a critical error. The third thing we need to do is make sure that we are building churches that are evangelistically relevant. I'm really grateful to God to be in a room full of people that are uh, desperate to be on mission, but let's hope that we're not just missional in a way that was relevant in 2010, but we've actually just become a little bit blunt as time has gone on. 
Friends, we need to be building churches that is intentionally proclaiming the gospel so that a next generation can be saved and rescued. And friends, as churches and as a movement, we just need to realize that this commission to evangelize the next generation is a commission that is only being carried by gospel-believing churches and gospel-believing movements. If we fumble this ball, if we do not evangelize the next generation, no government is going to say, we've noticed that the church is no longer uh, evangelizing the next generation, and so we're establishing a minister of evangelism in order to to, to bring about changes in the next generation. No government's going to do that. No NGO is going to do that. No public benefit organization is going to do that. The only people on the planet evangelizing are gospel-believing churches and gospel-believing movement, which means we just need to make it an absolute priority. The gospel involves personal conversion. The second thing that I want you to see from this passage is that The gospel that we enjoy is a gospel of sovereign grace, a gospel of sovereign grace. What is very clear from Paul's personal conversion and his subsequent understanding of the gospel is that our conversion is all of God and all of grace. Whilst we need to prioritize the proclamation of the gospel, we'd be making a big mistake if we assumed that a person's salvation was ultimately in the hands of the one proclaiming the gospel or even ultimately in the hands of the person hearing the gospel message. We love him because he first loved us. For Paul, this wasn't a difficult thing to understand at all. The idea that salvation rested in God and in his sovereign purposes wasn't a difficult thing for Paul to understand. If you chatted to Paul the day that he was going to Damascus and you said to him, what would be the very worst thing that could happen to you? What is the thing that you would hate to happen to you? Today, what is the very worst thing? What is the thing that you least desire today? Without question, it would be that I would worship Jesus. That was the very thing he most detested. His whole life was orientated at this point in stopping people from worshiping a false messiah. Paul, were you seeking Jesus? Were you looking for Jesus? Not at all. Jesus hijacked him. Jesus blindsided him, literally blindsided him. He floored him. He didn't wait for Paul to become interested and seek him out. No, no, no. God broke into Paul's life in a dramatic way. It was so dramatic that Paul has no problems writing stuff like this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for the adoption uh, to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves." Paul has no problem with predestination. He's got no problem with election. He's got no problem with the idea 
that God broke into his life apart from his request. It isn't a controversial thing for Paul because it was his actual experience. Now, I've been a pastor long enough to know that everybody's conversion story is different, right? Not everybody has uh, the risen Lord Jesus appear to them like the noonday sun. In fact, if you read the book of Acts, it's really interesting how Luke describes the advance of the gospel in Philippi. It's really interesting. Paul, Luke recalls for us that Paul rocks up in Philippi, and then he shares the gospel with Lydia, and Luke is careful to note that the Lord opened Lydia's heart. The Lord opened her heart in order to receive the gospel, but then the story continues, and we don't just get the conversion story of Lydia, we get the conversion story of the Ethiopian jailer. And for Lydia, the Lord opened her heart, but for the Ethiopian jailer, the Lord opened the earth, right? You remember the story? There's, there, there is an earthquake that happens that is part of this jailer coming to Christ. And all of us have different experiences, right? For Anna, she became a Christian when she was five years old. She was brought up in a Christian home. Her mom shared the gospel with her, and then the day came when she wanted to give her life to the Lord, and she can remember going up and speaking to her dad, and remember her dad explaining the gospel to her afresh. She can even remember the analogy he used about, it's like having a clean dress that's really beautiful, and then you do things that cause the dress to become messy and dirty and unattractive. And part of becoming a Christian is giving your dirty dress to the Lord and allowing Him to cover you with a brand new dress. She can remember kneeling down with her dad, becoming a Christian. She can remember at age five, after that event, going down the road proudly to tell her friends that she had become a Christian. She can remember evangelizing <laughs> right after becoming a Christian. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I wasn't instructed in the gospel uh, growing up. But in God's mercy and grace, he didn't overlook me. I had a friend at school who said, hey, do you want to come on a camp? And without really giving it much thought, I said, yeah, why not? I didn't really know too much about it. And then the info came for the camp, and it's like, you've got to take a Bible along. It's like, really? I've got to try and find a Bible. Why, why are we going to take this thing? And then, then went on the camp, and uh, I, I can, to this day, remember the first worship session. The first worship session of that camp uh, was just the most craziest moment in my life. I'd never been to a formal church service in my life. I'm now on camp worship, which just makes our, the height of yesterday look tame. These guys were like swinging from the chandeliers. They were jumping up and down. They were clapping. I've never been in anything like this. Like I've heard, like we've sung some hymns at a school assembly. That's as much as I've done. Now there are people clapping. They jumping. I'm, I'm next to my friend who I played rugby with. He's clapping and jumping like super excited. I'm like, that is a complete like freak. What is going on? And then there was another guy that I played rugby with uh, that, that I knew. And I'm trying to look for him and I can't find him. And he's on the ground. He is, he is lying flat. And he, has, he is like surrendering his life afresh to Jesus. And I'm like, I have entered the twilight zone. 
I entered the twilight zone, and now I know why I was born in 1973, because if I was born any later, I would have had a cell phone, and then I would have phoned my dad, and it was like, evacuate, evacuate, but you didn't have cell phones, and this camp was like seven days. I'm like, I am stuck with the Looney Tunes. What is going on here? Day two, true story. They then got you in groups, and I'm with my group, and our group kind of had to sit at the front. You know, you had to kind of sit with your group. And so the first day, I didn't know, like, any songs. Like, everything is new. Day two, they kick into the song. Second song, they sing one of the songs that they've sung the night before. So this is, like, the first time I can actually uh, participate with everybody else and sing. It's like, oh, the, the <laughs> Okay, let, let, let's sing along with this. And so I'm singing, and then the guy who was, who was surrendering his life afresh to Jesus the night before, the guy I played rugby against, comes to me and says to me, do you believe what you're singing? And I go, I like internally go, wow, that's kind of amazing, because this is literally the first time that I've actually joined in <laughs> with singing. So I say, yes. And he says to me, do you want to become a Christian? I'm like, Okay. But it wasn't at a very deep level. If you had said to me, hey, do you want to grab a drink? I think I would have said yes as well. <laughs> that individual was Gareth Bowley, who leads our church in the Mams and Toti. The guys prayed for me afterwards. It was hilarious. The guy actually running the camp said that they, when they did the debrief of the evening, actually that evening the gospel was presented. I wasn't a part of that because they were outside praying for me. And there was this guy who responded to the gospel and was weeping, and there's genuine repentance. And the, the guy running the camp said they did the debrief, and they said, guys, you know, this is like crazy. There's a complete peer group pressure thing. This guy kind of responded because his mates were kind of pressing on him. I'm sure we won't see him in six months, but so-and-so, repentance, faith, tears, that's going to last. And it was actually the exact opposite. <laughs> it was the exact opposite. Because it doesn't come down to what we're doing, it's of what God's doing. And friends, for some of us, our, our conversion experience is like Paul. For others, it's like Lydia. For some of you, it's like Anna. For some of you, it's like me. Actually, I want to suggest if you analyze Anna's story, there's actually more evidence of God's intervention in her life than in mine. But friends, however you've come to Christ, I want you to know that at the bottom of your salvation is God himself. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon puts this. When I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. I thought that I sought the Lord earnestly. I had no idea that the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is first aware of this. I can recall the very day and hour when I first received these truths on my soul, when they were, as John Bunyan said, burnt into my heart as with hot iron. And I can recall how I felt I'd grown on a sudden from a babe into a man. That I had made progress in spiritual knowledge through having found once and for all the clue to the truth of God. One week night when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. The thought struck me. How did you become a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought the Lord unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek Him. 
I prayed, I thought, but then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the Scriptures. How came I to read the Scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? In a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all, and that He was the author of my faith. And so the doctrines of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I have not departed to this day. I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. If you are in the room this morning and you love Jesus, can I just invite you to put up your hand? If you love Jesus, can you put up your hand and can you keep it up? The Bible says if your hand is up, if you love Him it is because he first loved you. At the bottom of your salvation is God himself. Listen to what Spurgeon says. He says, I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure that he chose me before I was born or else he would have never chosen me afterwards. He must have elected me for reasons unknown to me. For I could never find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with such special love. Friends, we have a gospel that demands a personal conversion. But the gospel that we love is a gospel of sovereign grace. Thirdly, the gospel that we love is a gospel with essential content. Time doesn't allow me to expand on the content of the gospel, but if you feel like you need a refresher on that, and it's always good to refresh yourself, go to YouTube, type in Don Carlson, what is the gospel, and you'll get three sessions of over an hour each in which you can just refresh yourself on what is the gospel. But the gospel does have essential content. And what is evident from the book of Galatians is that it is possible to be passionate about Jesus and, it can be, and it's possible to be passionate about church planting and yet be utterly wrong about the gospel. Simply being passionate for Jesus and on mission for Jesus doesn't mean that you have the right content. It is very interesting to me that Paul records here that after 14 years, after his first visit to the guys in Jerusalem, he went back up to make sure that the gospel that he was preaching was accurate and that he wasn't running in vain. I find it incredible that the Apostle Paul, who would have pioneered so many churches in those 14 years, would have been incredibly fruitful, didn't assume that just because he was planting churches and that people were responding that his gospel was accurate, and he understood that if his gospel was wrong, then everything he had done was in vain. It was an utter waste of time. Paul knew that the content of the gospel matters, and it really matters. Paul has his harshest words to say to those that want to mess with the content of the gospel. Notice Galatians 1 verses 8 and 9, just before the passage that we preached. And even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. We have already said this and now we say it again. If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. The Greek word there is anathema. Anathema. This is serious. 
This is an arbitrary, it doesn't say, well, this is, well, this is my kind of gospel, it's a little bit of a spin, we've kind of, we've kind of dollied it up for 2019. No, if it's a different gospel, you're under God's curse. It's super serious. Paul in Philippians is actually the guys that are trying to preach the gospel out of false motive in order to cause more trouble. Paul says, the content is right, I'm fine with it. Because he knows that the power rests in the actual message of the gospel, not in the messenger. He says in Galatians 2, do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Can you, can you see the stakes? You preach a different gospel, you're under God's curse. If you're saying that there's another way to get right with God, then you are actually saying that Christ died for nothing. Don Carson says the first generation believe the gospel. The second generation assume the gospel. The third generation deny the gospel. Second generation Christians here, you do not have a right to assume the gospel. You must get clarity around the gospel and you must proclaim the gospel. And the gospel must be front and center of what you're doing. It's not a peripheral thing. It's not the ABCs to get you into something that is really important. It is the A to Z. It changes everything. You cannot assume that people understand the gospel. You cannot assume that churches are being built on the gospel, that there's clarity around the gospel, that it's the priority of the gospel. Simply knowing about it isn't enough. You've got to emphasize it. You've got to build churches on the gospel because it really matters. The fourth thing that we see here, the fourth thing that we see here in Galatians is that the gospel that we are to preach and live out is a gospel that is good news to the poor. Paul goes up to Jerusalem after his 14-year uh, hiatus, and there are two big takeaways that he gets from his second visit to Jerusalem. The first takeaway in verse 6 of chapter 2 is, they added nothing to, my, my, to the content of my gospel. I was doctrinally on point. They added nothing. But verse 10, all they asked me to do was that we should continue to remember the poor. Their concern of the leaders in Jerusalem wasn't doctrinal content. Paul was on point, but their concern was for gospel application. The one thing that they asked us is that we should continue to remember the poor. And then Paul says the very thing that we were eager to do. Why were the leaders in Jerusalem concerned when Paul is having a discussion around the gospel that he should remember the poor. Well, the reason why he does that, why they do that, is because, of course, these guys walked with Jesus. These guys were at the synagogue when Jesus took the scroll of Isaiah and read, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then they remember him handing the scroll back, sitting down with the eyes of everyone fastened on him, and they remember him saying, and today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And Jesus is saying nothing less than, I am the true Jubilee, I have arrived. I have come to cancel debt, and I have come to restore you to be the people that you're always meant to be. The great Jubilee mandate involved two things. Yes, it involved the cancellation of debt, but it also made a requirement on your family to go and get family members 
that it had sold their property and properties were allocated based on your family, your clan, and your tribe. So your property wasn't just uh, a kind of an asset to you, it was also your relational connectivity. So when people got into debt, they had to sell their land in order to pay back their debt, and sometimes they had to sell themselves, and God had forbidden slavery uh, in the promised land, so they're now having to sell themselves into a foreign land, and once in 50 years, if you had a family member who was in slavery, who had sold his property, you need to go find him, you need to go buy him out of slavery, you need to bring him home, and you need to buy, buy his plot of land back, and you need to restore him back to be the person that he was always meant to be. And when Jesus says, today the scripture is fulfilled and you're here, and he's saying nothing less than I've come to cancel debt. I've come to forgive sin, but I've also come to restore you to become the people that you were meant to be. And so we have gospel truth, but then we also have gospel application. And if we are to fully proclaim the gospel, we cannot simply declare forgiveness of sin. We absolutely must. But we must declare the benefits and the effects of the gospel is that people get restored to becoming the people that they were always meant to be. We've got lots of leaders in this room. How many times when somebody's checked in on you, hey, I just want to check like I'm doing my ministry, okay, can I just check out the gospel? I just want to talk around our philosophy of ministry, and they talk to you about those conversations. At the end of the conversation, you go, this looks really awesome. There's just one thing I want to remind you about. Please do not neglect the poor. Do not forget the poor. How many times have you said that to somebody? How many times have you said, like, this is, like, super important? You're actually going to violate something really important if you do not do this. Friends, can we serve each other as brothers and sisters to prod and provoke each other to continue to remember the poor? Can we build churches that are not country clubs where the poor are excluded, but where we build churches where well-resourced and averagely resourced and poorly resourced individuals come together and worship Jesus at the same place at the same time? Can we, as a brother and a sisterhood, can we be generous in helping others in different parts of the world to reach their communities where they are under-resourced? Can we build churches in our context that are caring for the poor? Like if, if our churches shut down, that there would be like protests because like service delivery is plummeting. What's going on? If your church closed down this week, would, would anybody in the neighborhood complain? Would, would they even know? We, we need to be building churches where people know if we shut down. Can we excel not simply at proclaiming the gospel and defining the gospel, but can we also excel in gospel practice? The fifth aspect of the gospel that I want to highlight to you, and I was, it was a point that surprised me. In February, we were going around the team and guys were just sharing what they felt they were going to bring, and I'd felt this passage from Galatians, and it kind of just mentioned four headings that I probably wanted to operate under, and, and this one I didn't anticipate saying, uh, uh, bringing. It's only when I got into the text that it became very clear to me that it's a, such an important aspect of the gospel. And the fifth aspect is a gospel for leaders. It's one thing to proclaim the gospel to others, it's quite another to appropriate it ourselves. If you study Galatians 2 carefully, it is amazing how candid 
Galatians 2 is with regard to the missteps of various leaders. Most of us are pretty familiar with what happened in Galatians 2, and I thought I was familiar with it. We know the deal. Peter separates himself from the Gentiles. Paul comes in. He rebukes Peter publicly. He kind of calls him to account and calls him to live in line with the gospel, and, and, and that's the gig, right? Peter really let the show down. But actually, when you read Galatians 2, you understand that there are actually a number of leaders who are dropping the ball here. It's not just Peter. So what happens is you have some disciples from James. What's actually going on is there's a big persecution of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. It's getting super tough. James sends some guys down to warn Peter who's in Antioch, but he's going to go back to Jerusalem. Hey, just heads up. These guys are looking out for us. And if they don't think we kosher, they're taking us out by the knees. Peter hears this and he thinks, whoa, I'm just here in Antioch for a short while. I'm just going to just going to separate my soul. I don't really want to be taken up by my knees. And I feel like my primary call isn't in the diverse Antioch. It's in Jerusalem and I'm going back to Jerusalem. So I'm just, I'm just, it's just wisdom here. I don't want to offend them. I don't have a problem. I ate with them before, but just for my own preservation, I think I need to do this. And Barnabas, the good Jewish boy, it's like, hey, well, if, 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 like, if like Peter's doing that, maybe, maybe, maybe I need to do that as well. And so what we see here is it isn't just Peter who's got a problem. <laughs> James has got a problem. And Barnabas has got a problem. And Paul is highlighting the problem. But as he's highlighting Barnabas... Of course, as we read on, we know that Paul and Barnabas are going to have a disagreement around Mark, which later on, Paul is actually going to realize he was wrong about, because he's going to say, hey, can you send Mark to me, because he's super useful. But he wasn't useful at that time. When we read the Bible, the Bible is remarkably candid about the missteps of leaders, you can hear some leadership stuff and say, oh, there's, there's like a terrible thing that's happened. Look at all the American leaders that are falling. Look at, look at what they're doing. As if this thing just happened in like the 2000s. Read the Bible. Peter messed up big time. We're going to see in the next point how serious it was. But so did James. And so did Barnabas. And so is Paul. When you read the New Testament, there's only one perfect leader. His name is Jesus, right? There's only one perfect leader. And friends, what can happen is that we can respect leaders, but we can put them on a pedestal. And we can begin to idolize them. And the thing is, when you begin to idolize a person, when they make a genuine mistake, you then swing from idolizing them to demonizing them. But friends, we don't believe in papal perfection. The New Testament doesn't present the fully orb leader who never missteps. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about the fact that there aren't disqualifying sins that you could do. I'm not, I'm not saying that there are, of course, things that require people to step down from ministry. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But what I am saying is, through reading Galatians 2, is that you get called leaders qualified leaders, faithful leaders who have blind spots and make mistakes and they learn and they grow from it and they move on. The reality is James and Peter 
and Barnabas messed up, but it didn't define them. Actually, they continued to be fruitful. Peter made a mistake. James made a mistake. Barnabas made a mistake, but they weren't mistakes. They made a mistake, but they weren't mistakes. They were called by God. And the God who had saved and rescued them is the God that can bring to completion that which he had started in them. Or to use Imbonisi's analogy, God wants us to move from not knowing but loving to then knowing but not loving to the mature place where we know but we still love. The final aspect of the gospel that is critical for us is that this is a gospel that unites us, a gospel that unites us. Peter made a significant mistake because what he did was he separated himself from Gentile believers, which in one sense is quite staggering because we know that Peter himself was actually at the forefront of sharing the gospel with Gentiles. We know he's the one that receives the vision from God not to call unclean what it is uh, clean that God has called clean. He is the one that shares the gospel with Cornelius. The Holy Spirit falls. He's the one that baptizes Cornelius. He's the one that's needing to give a defense of the fact that the Gentiles have been included. He's at the very forefront of this. The thing that he was really good at becomes the thing that he becomes really bad at. But what is interesting is as he, as he has a brain freeze and does something really bad, what's interesting is that Paul doesn't come into him and say, hey, hey, Peter, you, you're breaking the rules. You shouldn't be doing this. You're, you're, you're immoral. Snap out of it. Actually, he says something much more deeper and more profound. He says publicly, Peter, you are not living in line with the gospel. The way that you are living is inconsistent with the gospel that you are preaching, separating yourself from another ethnic group or another people group is not to live in line with the gospel, is to, through your actions, contradict the gospel. Friends, the gospel brings us to God. It unites us to God, but it brings us to one another. It ought to bring us to one another, and it ought to keep us together. The gospel brings us together, but the gospel keeps us together. And friends, as we are serving God in diverse uh, contexts, and it's so interesting hearing from different parts of the world, everybody seems to be having the same challenges of people trying to separate, and we need to proclaim a gospel that brings people together, but as we keep the gospel front and center, it is the gospel that doesn't just bring us together, but it is the glue that keeps us together. There is a new song that is going on in heaven, and the song is this. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Isn't that incredible? In heaven, where there are people from every tribe and language and nation and people, what are they declaring? Your blood has made this possible. The gospel, the message of the gospel is the thing that brings us together and ought to keep us together. And friends, at local church level, at continental level, at international level, 
our ability to stay together will be directly proportionate to our ability to keep the gospel front and center because it is the gospel that keeps us together. When we want to separate out, when we want to reject people of other ethnic backgrounds, we are not living in light of the gospel. The gospel brings us together and the gospel keeps us together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just want to confess to you that for so many of us, we are attracted to what is latest and what is most trendy and what is trending. And we find it really easy to assume the gospel. And I pray, Holy Spirit of God, that by your mercy and your grace, that you would help us as individuals, as churches, as hubs, as continents, to keep your gospel front and center. That we would be a gospel proclaiming people. That we would believe in personal conversion. That we would be those that guard the gospel. That understand that the gospel is good news to the poor. That we don't need the gospel just at conversion but through our leadership maturing. Lord, I pray that whenever we feel the need to separate, we would be quick to ask ourselves, are we living in line with the gospel? Or have we made something else more important than the gospel? Lord, this morning I pray for any leader who's here, who has made a mistake, but feels like a mistake, feels disqualified, feels drained to be faithful to the call that you've given them. Lord, we thank you that we don't just proclaim the gospel to others. We thank you that the gospel comes to us as leaders. And Lord, we thank you for the candor and the honesty of the Bible. That there were senior leaders who made significant mistakes, but you were still faithful to bring to completion that which you began. We thank you that in your word you say that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just, and you will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, I pray for your gospel work over us as leaders. Lord, I pray that you would wash over us. I pray that freely we would receive grace and freely we would give it. Lord, we pray for our children. We pray for your saving work in their lives. Lord, I pray for the singles here. Lord, I pray, make them gospel proclaimers. May they have sons and daughters in the faith. May you do extraordinary things in our life as we keep your gospel front and center. And all God's people said, amen. amen.